What's up, everybody? Wanted to uh, give you a little insight into uh, how this episode will start off. Um, as I said in the mini episode, typically I talk to everybody for a couple minutes before and after uh, the, the recording has started. Um, no different with this one with Nick. Um, we kept chatting. We kept talking, saying that I should hit record and just kind of flow into naturally into a, a conversation as opposed to a hard intro and all that kind of stuff. Um, so this episode is going to start with me and Nick uh, talking in general and just I, I hit record right in the middle of it. So um, hopefully it's it doesn't take too long to kind of get into the swing of the conversation. Um, that being said, uh, I'm really proud of this episode because I really enjoyed talking with Nick and wanted to have him on to discuss uh, you know sobriety and becoming a sober life coach and uh, and the struggles you know of coming to grips with being you know addicted to you know in his case alcohol and uh, whatnot and hopefully someone will hear this that may be going through some of their own issues and and needs help and doesn't really know where to start and um, maybe hearing this will will allow you to. Uh, take that first step and, and uh, you know, getting the help that you need to be a better you. Um, so hopefully, you know, enjoy this conversation. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, there's, you know, lots of references that Nick makes to books, to uh, a couple of different programs. Um, so hopefully, uh, if you need help or you're looking for help, maybe uh, those can get you and set it in the right direction. Um, so enjoy. So you were starting to talk about uh, the band history uh, when you started at Dice Today back in 2002, which would have been, I guess, both yours and mine, senior year of high school. Seniors. <laughs> O'Toole. Uh, so I know when I was graduating, I was pretty much like, fuck, fuck going to school. I'm not going to give someone money <laughs> to not have to be accountable for going and be put in a lot of debt and not even knowing what I want to do with my life at 17. Uh, so at that point, you're getting ready to put out a record and actually do something and kind of have an idea of where it is that you want to go. In the broadest of senses, I guess. Yeah. Make it big. Um, no, with the back in... Well, the band started in 2001, right around summertime. And uh, as legend has it, uh, I was not, uh, I'm not the original drummer of the band, a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Joe Chronic Coonsy, uh, I believe that's his last name. If he's listening, I'm sorry, dude. I, really, I think it's Coonsy. Um, uh, another a fellow Guido of yeah. Buffalo. Um, who was actually a, a phenomenal drummer, but it just didn't work out, I guess. So um, I actually was in a band with Brooks, uh, Nick Brooks, and Chris Capelli. Uh, 
called Bullet versus I, which was a blatant, <laughs> which is like a blatant, um, uh, buried alive slash hate breed ripoff band, but with just terrible, terrible. <laughs> it was just fucking awful. Um, we all got to start somewhere, I guess. Got to start somewhere, man. Uh, but anyways, basically they, when I was in that band. They're like, dude, you can't be in the band unless you get a double kick pedal. That's it. It's like, it's like, oh shit. All right, well I got a fucking. Uh, I was working at a sub shop at the time, so I just had to work a lot more hours, I guess. But anywho, so when um, they had a falling out with Joe, you know, they put out um, that demo, that three song demo which was called Let the Angels Whisper Your Name. I think that's what it was called. Way and I listened to it, and I fucking loved it. I was like, God damn it. I hate you guys for breaking up Bullet versus I and leaving me on the sidelines and starting this. But I actually went to their very first show. Um, I believe uh, Chris just actually put it up on their Facebook page. Um, it was in a basement, and like there was no other, no, really no other band that sounded like that. It sounded like that at the time. So I think that's really what kind of put the band on the map. Um, at least it sounded like that from Buffalo. Um, there are a handful of other bands, but there was something I thought was unique about it. Uh, and then they had a falling out, and then uh, I got a, I went to school with Brooks. He was in a grade below me, um, 2001. So what was that? I was a junior. Yes, um, you would have been a junior. We would have been juniors. Sweet. <laughs> Waves of South Billy's alumni. Uh, um, so, yeah, Brooks approached me, and he's like, dude, um, we need a drummer, and uh, if you want to try out, be here, learn these songs. And he gave me a cassette tape. <laughs> We're making a comeback with, for some stupid reason. Yeah, with... Um, <laughs> You know, with five songs on it, and it started from the halfway. <laughs> so I had to, you know, I, to you kids out there, you actually had to rewind, rewind to get to the beginning of. I know it's bullshit, but I don't know. It was cool at the time. So I put it in my my Iowa Walkman, and uh, you didn't have that you know, disc man. Couldn't afford those yet. The what? The disc man. Those disc mans the with disc the uh, thirty second skip. Anti-skip? No, no, no. I had, I had to save up bottles and cans for that. <laughs> trying to think of what the, the having uh, grown up uh, in the East Coast, I'm trying to remember what the what the uh, return rate for cans was. Isn't it like five cents? Yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, I grew up in Delaware. We had to do it by the pound, and that shit sucked. <laughs> that's that's a ripoff. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So, well, you just have to get more glass. Mm. I mean, they're off getting. I was, a bunch of glass. We were lazy back then. We didn't have the internet. We just... <laughs> right. We didn't have the excuse of the internet to be why we were so lazy. It was just, I'm lazy. Yeah, that's fine. Didn't have Crystal Pepsi either. Uh, no. Actually, uh, yes, we would have. No, we wouldn't have. Not then. I was drinking probably Lemon Pepsi and uh, Pepsi Blue. Ah, uh, Pepsi Blue. That was the shit. Papa Roach endorsed it. Loved it. <laughs> Papa Roach. <laughs> Speaking of, yeah, we toured with them exactly ten years ago. I know, there's a funny story that I, I won't tell that I know that happened when you guys were on that tour. Yes, yes, well, we can tell it whenever. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that point. So they asked me 
to uh, join the band, and and I was secretly kind of, um, you know, owning up some skills there, uh, sharpening um, some uh, skills, I guess, and um, and uh, yeah, what, what the hell was I saying? Oh yeah, the Iowa Walkman. So I had uh, all five songs that they were playing and jamming out to um so i learned i actually um i had them all memorized within a couple days which is pretty crazy and then you know set up the kid at the jam space and kind of just like fell into place everything just came together and you know once i started jamming with them I saw Nick look at Chris, and they're just, you know, gave each other a nod, and it was pretty cool, you know, being uh, 16 and like playing songs that were pretty, <laughs> pretty awesome, and people were digging, um, you know, gave me that sense of like, holy fuck, well, you know, this is what I need. This is this is everything I've wanted, and uh, and it worked out, and. <laughs> And now I'm on my way to becoming an addiction counselor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's, uh, some would say it's all about what, uh, you're supposed to be where you are when you're supposed to be there, or probably a more eloquent way of saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's crazy that, I mean, there was a while where I didn't even think about the band, uh, because I just, I didn't have time and couldn't, and it wasn't. Um, I mean, because as most diehard fans might know, we just kind of fell off the earth for a while. And uh, so did I. <laughs> um, you know, well, long story short, I'm, I'm, I'll be four years sober June 4th. And, uh, you know, that has a lot to do with my new career path. Um, and... Uh, it's been a wild ride, dude, but, you know, it's kind of like what you're saying before about, I don't know if you were filming at the time, but, you know, learning from the mistakes that you make, like electing Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't you know, recording at that point, but uh, in short, uh, and just kind of recapping why I actually wanted to talk to you for this um to me, I think, and we've been friends in the sense that, like most people are in this day and age through social media, um, right. we have had a few interactions uh, over the years, but very limited uh, to being in bars and yelling at each other where we probably can't hear. Um, right, right. But I have seen the, the, I won't necessarily call it slow progression for a lack of uh, how long it's been, but just more... I had saw you when you were trying to start your your new career and kind of the issues that you were running into initially, uh, getting certified and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I might have that wrong, but I, I, that's what I remember. Um, mm -hmm. And just kind of remembering how you were when I had first met you at, toward the end of uh, the band's kind of active gigging uh, time. And then seeing like how you've gotten sober now over the last four years, you've you know had another kid, you got married, like kind of a complete 180 uh, from where everything was. Um, so it's kind of been 
interesting to see you kind of, for lack of a better framing of words, but kind of putting your life together and kind of getting all the things that you, I feel like, where you wanted to be and you just kind of couldn't until you kind of handled your shit. Um, yeah. And to me, I think that's a really, it's a very admirable uh, story too, because I mean, a lot of people have issues with themselves or things that they, you know, that they need to address and just for whatever reason don't, can't, or whatever. So the fact that, you know, you're able to without it, you know, coming, and maybe I, I'm wrong on this part, but without it coming to a severe issue at some point where you're like, I was, you know, in a hospital bed, woke up after blacking out, you know, almost on death's bed, blah, 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 you know, like some tragic, horrible story that kind of made you had to shake up out of everything. But mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, other than, you know, maybe stories I don't know, or, you know, you haven't shared, it seems like you kind of got through it without really any issue like once you kind of put your mind to it and i think it's a like i said it's a story i think uh, is really interesting and i think it uh should be shared and you know maybe someone at some point who may have followed the band but doesn't follow your specific page because i mean it's not like you're putting this on it dies today's page or anything like that so i mean i'm hoping that maybe uh someone else who needs to take the steps that you have in the last four years um can maybe hear this and kind of find the help that they need whether whether it be drinking or not. Yeah, well, addiction uh, is not limited to substance abuse. Um, let's face it. Um, we are very attached to our devices. <laughs> we are very attached to um, beverages. Um, you name it, man. Shopping, uh, sex addiction, addiction gambling, you know, and a whole array of things, and I define addiction as, as any behavior that has uh, short-term um, benefits, you know, that is chased regardless of negative consequences. And notice I said nothing about drugs. Right. You know, so it's it's kind of um, the society that we live in, we, we pick and choose which is more socially acceptable than others. You know, like, for instance, the heroin addict is after the same thing that somebody going to Taco Bell compulsively is after. You know, it's a different, it's a different, it's a different um, medium. It's yeah. definitely a different medium. But um, ultimate, ultimately, it's about wanting to feel whole again and uh, filling some sort of void, um, healing some sort of pain whether it's real or um, imagined, and that's what chronic stress is. Chronic stress, you know, stress in itself is a response to a threat. Um, But chronic stress is, you know, a response to imagined threat. So when, but the body adapts. So if you think that you're constantly in some sort of threat, your body's just your, your mind and your body is going to be on defense at all times, and there's a cost to it. You know, you're pumping your entire body with with stress hormones. You got um, adrenaline and cortisol flowing through your entire body, and that begins to wear down your organs, your your brain, your heart. Um, even your bones, you know, and we wonder, you know, in Western medicine, we chalk it up as uh, just diseases that pop out of nowhere, which is so far from the truth, you know. I mean, obviously, I don't have any 
credentials, but I have common sense, you know. <laughs> it's like... Well, you've uh, also fucking experienced I, some of these things firsthand, so, I mean, that's... Yes. I would call that on-the-job training to a degree. Well, and it's just, um, it, you know, it's problem-solving. It's as simple as that. You get to the root of a problem, you know. You keep going. If you haven't found what the problem is, you keep going. You don't just fucking give up and chalk it up as, well, I don't know, it could be this. Well, it's going to be this because we don't know, and we want to sell meds. <laughs> yeah. I think it was um, a, an old Chris Rock skit from uh, Bigger and Blacker. Yes, I know exactly what you're Yeah, and about. he was like, you know, the cure, there is no cure, or there's no, yeah, there's no, uh, there's no money in finding a cure. We can't even cure athlete's foot. What we can do is make you, fi- or find a way to make you live with it longer. And he goes, to, yeah. the, to the day where we're going to find, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, People are going to be like, oh, Johnson, you weren't in last yesterday or last week. Yeah, my AIDS was acting up again. Yeah, right. I had to flare up with my AIDS, but I took yep, some Robitussin. He, <laughs> he goes, are you sad? Are you lonely? Does your foot hurt? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we, is it's, the water, are you hot? Are you cold? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like the one that always got me was the restless leg syndrome. Like you just watch a video of someone shaking their leg for like an extreme close-up of it for like two or three minutes for the infomercial and you're like yeah you know now that i see that my leg does kind of just twitch a whole bunch by itself and it's like i need that yeah i I need need that (laughs) they're convincing us that there's something wrong with us at all times whoever the collective they are (laughs) it's frustrating um but you know this is what this is like the best we can do right now unfortunately um you know so in a sense that's where um, a lot of my drive comes from too, because there's a lot of uh, um, corruption going on, and and it seems like people would. It's like you said earlier, dude. It's all it's all about it's all about money. No matter where, no matter what um, area of uh, whether it be healthcare, whether it be music, whether it be um, fuck education, you know. <laughs> it's like it, it gets it gets depressing after a while, but then you see events like um, March or I'm sorry January 21st, where people come together and you know for just to be one as as humanity and take care of one another and regard one another, and um, that's in essence where recovery stems from is regarding oneself where addiction is the complete opposite it's disregarding yourself you completely lose yourself um and if you want to take it another step further it's like all right well you know you have when i go back to the problem solving piece i had to figure out what happened to me to make drugs and alcohol so enticing like when the band stopped like my whole life stopped because that's all I knew. Um, Can to we? Give you that short. I was gonna say I'll let you. I should have let you finish that. I'm sorry for that. Um, but I was gonna say that's fine. Um, maybe a, a better place to kind of start as opposed to starting where it ended and then trying to work back. So we were kind of talking about the band starting, and to yeah. me, um, the the time frame of you guys like touring, and especially by the time you got with like Trust Kill and, and probably were you know, a full-time touring band was kind of the, 
the heyday, I would say, like the last like kind of big tours, kind of debauchery. Um, like I can speak personally on a couple of Ozfests that I've gone to to see like what that's like. I mean, basically, it, it's almost like an adult camp of sorts. <laughs> uh, really I mean, like I got there. A friend of mine was doing some uh, tour managing and stuff for a couple of bands on the tour. And basically, from the time I got there to the time I left, if you weren't playing, well, fuck, I guess even if you were playing, it didn't fucking matter. You were drinking from start to finish. And that's, right. you know, a solid 10, 12, 15 hours worth of just getting shit-faced hammered out in the middle of a parking lot. Or you were passed out. <laughs> or you were passed out and probably threw up and woke up and kept drinking. <laughs> but the, the amount of drinking that like kind of goes on on some of those tours, especially back then, like it's kind of funny in as much as it, I guess it is a humorous thing, but I look back at some of those Ozfest tours and the bands that are still around, almost everybody has quit drinking. Like, um, you look at Jamie Josta, like, he's been sober now for, like, 10 or 12 years. Randy from Lamb of God quit drinking and was one of the people that I came across uh, at that one of the Ozfest, and same with uh, Willie Adler from uh, Lamb of God, who started shit with me because of a stomach tattoo. <laughs> That was really, really funny. He came in, he's like, I heard, you think you got a funny tattoo? Oh, I got this. And I was like, all right, okay. <laughs> and, like, he was just, like, kind of confrontational. I was like, I'm going to go. I don't know what's going yeah. on, and I'm not trying to start shit. How about that? But it's, uh, it's one it's of those that, where I feel like it I was kind of... I back off what you're saying, because I'm finding out that more and more musicians have, have found recovery and sobriety in some sense, and I, I recently found out that... James Hetfield is sober and yep. in recovery. Yeah. Didn't know that at all. Well, I think that was happening. That was like one of the bigger issues on the some kind of monster documentary. Was it? Yeah, that okay. he basically would be drink and become an asshole to everyone and shut everyone out and just go disappear and realize that from his family as well and realize that that's just not healthy. And I think like it's, since then he's been sober as well. Well, that's really cool. Um. Yeah, I was just listening to, uh, when I was out in L.A. visiting my friend Mike, um, uh, podcast was on with Hetfield, and he was talking about his background, and I'm like, I mean, shit, it's, it's, you know, that's where it all stems from. It stems from upbringing, and I think um, a lot of folks tend to shut that part out, you know, almost permanently in their lives, and not realizing that that's where it's all festering from. You know, um, granted, everyone's upbringing is different. Some some folks not may not remember um, things that happened to them because addiction is it's a um, it's a problem, um, but it's not the problem. It's a response. It's an attempt at a solution to the problem. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um. In other words, it's an adaptation to trauma or neglect or um, abandonment. Um, let me give you, I guess, a quick background on uh, my experience. My um, my birth father left my mother, myself, and my sister when I was about the age of two. And um, I guess I have a handful of memories seeing seeing this guy. And uh, one of the last ones was, I think, right around age five, we went to his house and, you know, spent the weekend there, and and then he just split, you know? And my mom remarried when I was about um, uh, 
eight. And then uh, my stepfather came in and took over the role. But it was um, it was tough, man. It was tough, really. That imagine. Trying to figure out, you know, what this whole boyhood, you know, shifting into manhood type thing, you know, when the guy who's supposed to be there it isn't and couldn't give a shit less, you know. Um, so when talking about that emptiness, filling that void, you know, this it doesn't happen to everybody, you know, with divorces and, and stuff like that. But it definitely kicks up your risk, fact, risk factor because it's under, um, you know, it's one of those things where genetics does play a role. Okay. Um, certain environments turn genes on or off. So I was born with the gene to become, and you know, addicted to alcohol. <laughs> you know, so that environment turned it on, and um, you know, it was sort of my way of feeling pain relief and, and love, which is kind of sad. It's sad to think about, but when you get down to the the brain neuroscience behind it. It released the same chemicals that love and connection do. Um, so, you know, for anyone who is listening right now or interested in what's going on with, you know, with them or with a parent, it's that they're not that they're a shitty person. It's that, you know, they're making shitty choices, but they're the best choices that they know how to, to be self-medicating. Right. You know, like someone would take painkillers because emotional pain is the same as physical pain. You know, the same centers in the brain light up if, you know, someone called you, um, you know, an asshole or a piece of shit or a pussy. And, uh, you know, then if someone stabbed you in the back, the same receptors would light up in the brain. So I think that strikes a huge chord for what we need to start educating people on. Um, and letting, you know, the folks know that it's not, you know, a moral flaw. It's not a character flaw. It's something that happened based on, um, traumatic events. I, uh, often wonder, cause I kind of alluded earlier to, to, you know, kind of being in a touring band probably allows you to. Make it a little harder to come to, to grips with is it just being socially a social participant and, and drinking and hanging out and being you know fun or having the fun that's you know you can have out on the road with friends or if it's because uh, i think like and i've talked to other people that are in bands about this but i think and it's pretty common knowledge at this point i would say that uh for as much as everyone thinks it's it's a it's a party all the time and it's just bullshit like you know you don't have any responsibility at work i think the thing that maybe people aren't aware of though is the fact that like you're never home any relationship you have whether it be your family friends whatever is falling by the wayside probably if it even is still intact um you have the people you're constantly around uh while you're on tour potentially in a cramped ass van where you can't get away from them uh, yeah. whatever issues that may be stemming from that, plus, you know, and the event that maybe you're recording, now you have to please a label head or whoever, a producer that you might not agree with or whatever. Like, there's so many variables that can go into 
your day-to-day that people aren't aware of uh, that I feel like maybe could add stresses or be a factor in, you know, some of this happening, like, to people where they overindulge as another coping mechanism on top of whatever it is that they maybe haven't figured out yet, personally. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, And uh, to speak on that, it's kind of like, you know, when I was talking about joining the band initially, you know, saying this is, you know, it was probably one of the greatest feelings I'd ever had. I mean, that's acceptance. Right. You know, that, and that's what, that's another thing I had been searching for for such a long time, you know, because my father bailed, you know, and it's kind of like I've spent my entire life searching for acceptance or the feeling of acceptance. And, um, that's, you know, another thing that, that alcohol and, and drugs did for me. It made me feel, you know, confident and, um, loved. Um, and that's another thing too, with the band, it was like, you know, I became somebody else. I became somebody who was accepted. I wasn't Nick who was, um, in pain all the time. And, um, it's kind of sad, man. I, it's really fucked up. How, how many people this, this happens to, uh, I remember one of the earliest memories I had was when I was five years old. I was at a Halloween party. I dressed up as Jim Kelly, (laughs) (laughs) you know, who was, who was, you know, coincidentally, you know, loved and appreciated and put up on a pedestal, you know, in the early nineties. But anyways, you know, we had to put our name down on a sheet and, uh, I could have put, I could have wrote Nick, but I decided to write Joe and it's like, how fucked up is that? You know, <laughs> is not even doesn't even like his own name. You know, that's kind of that's I don't know. It may just be something stupid, but these days I like to make connections. And for me, in my experience, the connection rings true for not really being at five years old happy with who I was. You know, um, and that would explain, you know, the the binge drinking. Um, right well into my early 20s where I was kicking it up to a bottle of Everclear like almost every day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I used to keep bottles of vodka under the driver's seat of my car. Um, did you ever, I mean, up, that did was you ever like, get a DUI ever? Like, ever get popped for any of that? Well, when I was 19, I, I wrapped my car around a tree in a pole. <laughs> when I, you know no tolerance law ah. so you know I luckily I had, it was my first serious offense I had a good lawyer and I only ended up paying a you know dealing with a misdemeanor on my record which is now um, off my abstract which is you know <laughs> these days it's like that would be there permanently right um, but um, you know it's kind of like these days more punishment doesn't lead to making people stop the things that they're doing you know what i mean right it's not more punishment doesn't lead to recovery it leads to like more punishment right because i'm sure it's a spiral where you feel bad that you did this thing that now is going to cost you money that you probably can't afford you probably lost your job so that's just going to keep you in the process of drinking because that's how you're coping with it so it's just a, a spiral of negative consequence i guess yeah, dude, there's this doctor 
who um, is one of my heroes these days. I never thought I'd say that an addiction specialist has, had, had become my hero. You know what I mean? <laughs> if you were to ask me 10 years ago, I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about, bro? Where's my beer? Um, um, but his name is uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's a uh, addiction specialist and uh, a physician in uh, Canada. Um, he talks about, um, oh shit, what was I saying? What was I saying before I brought it up? Uh, about the, about oh, that criminal pa- justice system. Okay. okay. He says, um, and this is brilliant. I'd never heard it like this before. The criminal justice system is in fact that criminal. <laughs> <laughs> because what it's doing, all it does all it does is is make people more more stressed and it punishes them further and you know if you do enough digging you're going to find that the person you're punishing has been punished their entire life you know because that's where it all stems from you know you think like people brought up in you know heart, you know loving wholesome households are going to be you know produce someone that shoots up sandy hook no hell no no way, you know, but you will find the occasional person who said, well, you know, my parents were, were great. You know, they were there. Okay. Well, they were there, but I mean, how there were they? Because there's a a condition called, um, uh, or phenomenon, if you will, called proximal separation, which is being there physically, but not there emotionally. Like you can be in the same room and still not be connected to your kids. You could be preoccupied. Um, you know, kind of like that good old fashioned story. The kid wants to play with dad, but dad's in the office too busy or is, you know, these days parents are on the phone. Right. You know, and I find myself having to slap my hand and put the phone away these days too, because we're so connected. Uh, it's, it's difficult, but, um, there is a thing that, uh, Matte mentions, which is, um, harm reduction which is mindful use. Like, you know, these days you can't get anybody to quit cold turkey. So what's the next best thing? Harm reduction. So mindfulness. If you're going to use, be mindful. Okay. So I was going to say it's not like a weaning off process at all then? It it is. If you plant the seed mentally, kind of, you know, if you, like for me, my first uh, experience in recovery really was when I had a family intervention in 2011. So it got um, to that point for you? What's that? I said so it had to come to like an intervention for you? It did because when I mentioned the bottles under my car, you know, in my car, um, Vicky, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, um, you know, she wondered why I was pale, bloated, and slurring my speech all the time. And reeking of booze, like I, thinking that I was getting really sneaky at hiding the smell, you know. And she just started to find bottles all over the place, because at one point I had gotten good at hiding it, and then I took advantage of it and it just, you know, the downward spiral that everyone talks about. You keep wanting more and more. You keep chasing it. That first high. Um, and eventually it all comes crashing down like this, this mental 
kingdom that we build of ourselves, you know, of just misery and, you know, we keep climbing to the top and we always just, you know, it's, it's like Jenga, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's just a bunch of Jenga blocks, um, of nothing, you know, like this mental kingdom, it's nothing, you know? So, um, we had that family intervention and, um, because Vicky had had enough and I, I wasn't doing a very good job at being a boyfriend and a father. Um, Tegan, let's see, she was born in 2009, my daughter. Um, so she was about a year and a half at the time. Wait, 2009, so, yeah, early 2011, so about a year and a half. And then, um, yep, had that family intervention. I came home from work one day, and uh, they did. everyone did a good job at hiding their cars down the block. <laughs> so it didn't, you know, give anything away. So walked in the living room, and um, there was members of Vicky's family and my family, everyone's kind of you know you sort of freeze um a lot of people panic and run out the door but my legs kind of just froze and vicky brought me over to the couch and everyone took out a letter and uh told me how how it was all going down you know um so i listened and um the ultimatum was you know you get help or you never see tegan again and uh, it's kind of like, well, you know, it's pretty obvious what I got to do. And in a, in a sense, it's like there was a sigh of relief, too, because, oh, finally. You don't have to hide it you know, anymore. I don't have to do this shit anymore, and I don't have to torture myself. Um, and uh, Vicky's uh, brother-in-law, Mark, um did a huge solid for me. He spent a lot of time calling the local treatment facilities to get me into a inpatient, and uh, I found one. A um, little bit of a waiting period, so, you know, I got a little antsy and then hesitant, like, you know what, I don't need this. I can do it on my own, but, you know, that's just all your nerves. That's the addiction talking to you, telling you, well, where's the booze? I'm freaking out here. Right. Um, so I went in and I completed the, the program. Um, it was a 28-day program. I was in there for two weeks. And it was fucking crazy, man. Like, uh, it, it really, the whole weight of reality had never been so heavy on my shoulders. Like, you know, you, I, you can't, I can't believe it got to this point. You know what I mean? You know, there's a lot of shame involved, but at the same time, you know that you're doing it for a good cause. Um, like, it's something that you have to do. Otherwise, you're going to end up dead. Uh, so, you know, I got through it. Detox was held, and I got up to the upstairs, the inpatient program, which was the 28 days. Completed that, and um, my plan was to come home. Um, typically, a lot of folks in their first treatment facility will have a um an outpatient or a halfway house i wanted to come right home because i thought i'd had it um if you got time this is a little 
kind of it's, it's on you actually i i have all the time it's it's you okay so if you got the time i'm i'm here to listen yeah um might as well because we're already into it you want to say yeah tune in next week <laughs> well we could always do a part two if you wanted to do talk more or if you had to leave but i know uh, no, i have as much set, time so. as you want i'm all set so we'll keep going so i um came home and um things were better you know things were it was a relief to be out of there uh, it was weird because being essentially i mean i wasn't in prison you know where i couldn't get out i could right. have left at any point but there was a cost to leaving you know um but at any rate when i did get home it was it felt good uh i was about um 45 days sober at the time and uh early recovery is a bitch <laughs> <laughs> but you know i was flying high on doing the good things and um so things were supposed to be all sunshine and rainbows i'm back home with my girlfriend and my daughter um but something happened along the way that like wasn't clicking for vicky uh and um she you know the last thing that anybody is really expecting to hear is you know what this isn't working out you're gonna have to leave um, and, you know, so that was that, like she wasn't happy and I don't blame her. Um, I guess it's what the old timers called, uh, the pink cloud. Like you think you have got it, but you really don't. And people are, you know, suffering because of it. You know, I wasn't going to meetings. I wasn't working a program really. Um, it's not recovery. It was just quote unquote sobriety, like, or the dry drunk attitude, um, where you just quit one thing and then replace and it with something still else. Kind of maintain, you, you maintain the same attitude and just pick up something else. Like, I think I started playing video games compulsively. I was gonna, spending. I was gonna ask if, like, and sorry to cut you off again. No, just, cool. I have a few different questions that, as you brought up a few things, but I didn't want to cut you off in the middle of saying these things. Yes. A few things that it just, you know, if you don't want to answer these, that's fine. That's no, good. But you talk about, you know, hiding bottles in your car and stuff like that. Like, did your work have any clue? Like, or was it one of those things where you hid it well enough from them because you're, they don't necessarily have any personal vested interest in, in your personal life to, to pay attention? Mm -hmm. Like, did your job have any clue? I, um, no, I was good at hiding it because I worked in construction, and so I worked with a bunch of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so, um, I mean, yeah, there was actually, it, well, it started to affect my attendance. You um, know, I was, I was calling in, you know, the old, well, I'm sick, you know, I, I, um, had Chinese last night, you know what I mean? Those old yeah, excuses. Yeah. So I went through the whole list of those. Um, but, uh, no, as far as like, you know, cause I definitely drank at work. <laughs> uh, that's the insanity of it. It's like that compulsive pursuit to feel complete. And it's, I mean, that's what alcoholism is, you know, it's, it's not, but at the same token, there are people who binge on the weekends 
right. that's their way of being complete. And they think that they just, you know, they don't have a can, problem because they know. they don't do it during the week. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the denial and rationalization piece. Could get into that for a while too, but it ultimately comes down as why, wh- why are you drinking? You know what I mean? Because yeah. we all, we, we, it's a socially acceptable thing. People, it's it's a part of it's ingrained in cultures all over the place. So it really comes down to like, what is the purpose? You know, are you drinking to enhance consciousness or defeat? You know, just obliterate consciousness, and that's that the essence of addiction is to not be present. You know, is to escape the self, escape reality. Um, you know, and the social drinkers who are fucking weird. You guys are so weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. No, I don't think I've uh, ever been deter- classified as weird for being a social drinker, where I can just like have a few and then leave and then put it down after that. Right, yeah, that's bizarre to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess, I guess to a degree, yes. If you're, if it's something that you can't can't do, uh, or have the control to do, then yeah, I could see it being a weird thing. Like, man, I wish I could do that, but I don't know. I, I think you, it's relatable to just about anything else. Like sometimes you look at somebody. Actually, no, that's not even a good analogy because that basically what I was going to compare it to is something that requires you to actually practice and put forth the skill <laughs> to learn sure, something. Sure. And definitely I would say the only skill or learn the thing you've learned by being a social drinker is like, well, that was one too many. So next time let's not do that because I don't want to wake up hungover or throw up when I get home. So outside right. of that, I, I I don't know. I think uh, – Rational thinking. <laughs> uh, yeah, to a degree. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Like I – I'm not trying to make this about me at this point, but – uh, one of the reasons that I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about this, like I had a friend who passed away um, through. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's it sucks. Um, but was into drug use of not like heroin or anything like that, but very uh, um, ex- like mind altering drugs to a degree. And I always okay. used to say so psychedelics. And- yeah, psychedelics. Like he used to be on like 4chan and shit, and would do like would buy plant additives. I did this. Okay. Um, and it would be like, oh, it's a planet additive. However, if you happen to take it and ingest it as a person, it has the same effects as whatever, you know, drug, like MDMA or things like that. Right. Okay. So, but he would get to the point where he had other issues as well, and then sometimes would have to, would end up facing those while, you know, peaking, more or less, or high, and then would just have terrible come downs and all that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. But... I remember thinking when he died, after we ended up finding out, um, of being like, you know, you're like one of the smartest dumb people I've ever fucking met in my life. Like, you are well-read, you have your writing published in magazines, like you were on pace to do all these great things, and you fucking threw it away on something so stupid. Yeah. And it's, it's been like that with a couple other people I know, never to the point where it's gotten with, with the one friend that, you know, passed away, but... I always think to myself that a lot of the people that I, I notice they get caught up in this shit, and it seems like yourself included through what I've seen over the last couple of years since you've been sober, is you have the mental capacity to obviously identify these issues, but for whatever reason, until you're able to, I guess, confront them uh, head on, I guess it gets the better of you and causes you to make not so smart choices. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's very. It's very disheartening as someone 
like you said, who's weird because I can socially drink or, you know, do something in moderation and be like, all right, that was, you know, I'll do that for the one time this year or whatever. But I don't know. Like I'm in my office and I'm looking at a bunch of books, like the heroin diaries and a bunch of cautionary tales, basically, of those that were, you know, icons when I grew up, like in the music scene and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like you read these things and about how terrible how it costs these people almost everything, including their lives or the lives of their best friends or whatever. And I always just go like, why the fuck does anyone ever do this? Like nothing about this sounds awesome. And it's like, I was listening to, I actually listened to the podcast you were talking about with Hetfield. It was the, uh, the WTF podcast with Mark Marin, uh, who Mm -hmm. also used to be, uh, who's been sober for, I think 12 or 15 years now as well. Um, but it's interesting to hear these people talk, and it's actually interesting that I don't hear it in your voice when you talk about some of your past uh, when you were when you were using. Is a lot of times I I see that people kind of look back and romanticize it a little bit, where it's like you think of like Dave Navarro was on one, and there was a movie he made, I guess, where he used a scene of him actually shooting up, and it was gross and disgusting, and everyone's like, oh, it's so fucked up and so gross, like how could you do it? He goes, yeah, you know what? I look at the same thing and I feel that way, and that's why I put it in there. And he goes. But the fucked up part is, is I watch it and I go, God, that looks so great. I just wish I could get high again. Uh-huh. And it's like, I I find that to be the weirdest part about it, where it's like even, like I said, the, ro- the romanticizing of something you know is terrible had led you yeah. down to be, led you down a, a terrible path, like in your life and, you know, probably cost you a lot of the things that you held dear, or if it didn't, almost did. Uh-huh. And yet people look back on it like, no... Yeah, it sucked, and I, I just can't do it. Sure, sure. So it's it's weird to me that <laughs> it's weird to me that, uh, and it's nice actually to hear that you're not you're one of the few I've heard that doesn't kind of romanticize. Like, man, you know, there's sometimes I do wish I could go and have a beer or two with friends and socialize or whatever, or what. And maybe you do, and you just haven't said it. But well, I hate to let you down. <laughs> <laughs> it's not letting me down. I hate to let you down. Um, well, here's the deal. Um, Everything that they're saying is completely accurate because it comes down to brain science and uh, neuroscience oh, and, <laughs> um, and chemicals, you know, because going back to what I was saying about, you know, that feeling of wholeness and acceptance and love, and that's exactly what heroin does, the opiates. They bind to our natural um, endorphin receptors, which, um, you know, we have our own natural painkillers which are endorphins and you know they're released you know um when we are first born with with our uh, you know our parents mother and you know when she coddling the baby endorphins are released letting the infant know that it's safe and it's being loved and receiving you know um the the love chemicals and we don't when you don't get that early in life um and you do heroin for the first time, that's your first experience of love and acceptance that what that didn't happen in early childhood, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. And I'm not just making this up. It's, you know, um, from a woman who rema- will remain nameless, who um, is comes from Vancouver, downtown Eastside, which is the most... Um, uh, drug-infested city in uh, part of any city in the world, I guess. 
this woman suffering from heroin addiction said, the first time I did heroin, it felt like a warm, soft hug. And it's, you know, how sad and uh, heartbreaking is that? Um, so it's just going back to that one piece about, you know, when you don't get um, – there, there's a addiction specialist out there who talks about um, – there are two things that can go wrong in a child's life. One are things that shouldn't happen, like abuse and trauma. Mm -hmm. And there are things that should happen that don't, like neglect or um, death of a parent or... Um, Something in the developmental any... stages, like when you're younger? Yes. Okay. It could happen at, you know... Um, going back to the uh, Dr. Uh, Gabor Mate who is, you know, he just, he gets it. And it, it all makes more sense than anything I learned in my, the course, uh, McKayzak course. Um, you know, because going back to what I said, it's, it's about making connections and w what fits. And this makes perfect sense. Um, even if you want to delve into Buddhism, um, the Buddha talked about, um, the interdependent core rising, which means everything is in relation with one another. Uh, if you look at a leaf, you know, it contains the sky, um, the sun, and the earth. You know, nothing arises on its own. Um, so, you know, just a simple experiment. You take a plant, you put alcohol, You instead of water, give it alcohol. See what happens. <laughs> right. So, you know, we tend to complicate everything and it's far more simplistic you know just i mean yes it is more complex we're definitely more complex beings than a leaf but we're no different um, in the basic things you know, we need in the grand scheme yeah. as living beings so um you know i think that's kind of what's gotten me fired up about learning this information taking my experience and giving back because it seems like still there's a big stigma about people who are addicted to substances um it's almost like a shame put on the person even though they've sought help which is what you should want the person to do but what they see are the behaviors and it's hard to see the person past the behaviors you know it's it's definitely and, and from my own experience i don't blame anybody for getting pissed off at me shutting me out and you know i mean that's what you you have to do for self-preservation like you if and that it goes back to that saying if you love something let it go because if it's harming you you know you're giving that person away you know with love because it's it's too it's distress you know it's not for it's not fucking worth you um and there's a, there's that codependent issue which is codependency people are you know uh, my wife was in codependency therapy um, and uh, was given the strength to, you know, empowerment to let me go, which was the best thing that she could have done. And it was beneficial because I had to be on my own and I had to hit bottom. And uh, but not everybody has to hit bottom. And what I say by bottom is that you have to be close to the earth you have to be grounded um and there's that saying about the the wagon falling off the wagon um which is like i think that's bullshit 
Yeah, I'd rather say like, all right, well, how many times can you fall off a wagon? You know, before you realize you should just burn the thing and start walking. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, I mean, to me, that's what recovery is. It's like, it's doing everything possible to regain control of your life. It's not just quitting one thing and then saying, oh, I've washed my hands clean of it. You know, um, it's sort of like a life reboot, um, a hard reset for the PC geeks out there. <laughs> You know, same hardware, new software, you know, a little old software that's essential. Um, what else, you know, recovery, what is the focusing on what the word actually means is finding something lost or stolen. Uh, what I lost was the quality of my life. Um, but, you know, going back to the band days, I mean, when it was just, so my life essentially from year 18 to 25, 26, um, or even 16 was partying and playing music. So, you know, when I met my wife in 2008, I didn't have any plan to stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you date for eight months, we find out we're pregnant, it's like, oh, Shit. okay, that's it. <laughs> we were writing Lividity at the time, and, uh, you know, I had plans to tour that album, and I had to step up to the plate and uh, be an adult. And uh, it, instead of doing what every healthy man would do is, you know, slow down, um, take responsibility, and be a responsible boyfriend and father, I, um, I did the opposite. I kicked up my drinking probably about tenfold. Um, you can imagine that <laughs> I mean I was drinking pretty heavily on tour but you know going into a bottle of Everclear almost every day I mean that's absurd yeah probably doesn't help though that you're able to get some of this shit for free and like your riders and whatever so it's not like it's costing you the money to keep up with your habit perhaps as well Oh, maybe well, not. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe you're blowing your per diems or part of your pay for being on the road on it as well. But well, I know typically, is... like when you're on a tour at probably the level you were at, you know, you're probably getting free drink tickets or free, you know, whatever you want if you have a decent rider. Yeah, yeah, or stealing um, <laughs> other stealing bands from the venues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good job. I won't. I won't say. I won't. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny that I actually did that. Well, I think you. it can at least be said that uh, if you did or did not, you wouldn't be the first, nor would you be the last. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, again, a few more questions, kind of going back to uh, the intervention. As someone oh, who yeah. hopefully will never have to go through that, knocking on wood, um, I mean, you kind of said that, like, you know, most people's initial instinct is to, is to kind of turn around and, and try to bolt, and you kind of just stood there. Um, what What is it like to sit in a room? Because I feel like on the one hand, it would have to be very, A, relieving, like you said, because, like, now you can kind of be like, oh, shit, I don't have to hide this anymore. So at least, like, that's out in the open. But then I feel like, and again, it would be like positive that you have so many, like you can look around and see so many people that, that give a shit and care and want to help you. But then 
I feel like through some of the experiences I've had of trying to do something like that, like all I ever really saw was the resentment. Like you're you're ganging up on me, and you, you know, it's not an issue. And and so like as someone who can you know now look back on it, what was it like? For me, what was it like for me? Well, ultimately, it's if you've ever been doing something you shouldn't, and then you're caught, multiply that by a thousand. And, uh, and then just like, if you've ever been to the dentist, you know, that vest they put on you, that x-ray vest, yeah, the vest. Put, ten, put 10 of those on you and then sit on the couch. Yeah. Um, that's what it felt like. Uh, you know, the weight of reality is so heavy. So <laughs> if I had to quote Marty McFly, I would say, well, this is heavy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and, um, but I don't know why I didn't run, but I think it might be going back to that piece where you have to be ready. I was going to say, were you ready at that point? You think like tired of, there was a part of me it? that was, I mean, a, a bigger part than not was ready to stop, you know, kind of that, the, the spiral, it's began to spiral out of control. Did you ever say to yourself that though? Like, did you like while drinking at work or while trying to hide it from your home life, or you ever like, man, it just something needs. To, I need to stop. Something needs to change, and kind of hoping that it just happened on its own. Well, there had been confrontations prior to that, you know, from my wife, and it was. Um, so I, I mean, I had tried half measures. But at the same time, I had been claiming that I was sober, you know. So, I mean, the weight of living a dual lifestyle on top of that, you know, that's just like living a lifestyle of covering your tracks. I mean, you just begin to drink more because you don't know what the fuck you're doing. I mean, you've completely lost yourself. You can't be yourself. And, and you're trying to be somebody else on top of that, um, you know, it's just, it's unmanageable. You really can't, I mean, you can only do that for so long before you begin to crack or before your body starts to say no for you, you know, and, and, and that's uh, actually the title of a book by Dr. Matei, When the Body Says No. Um, and it's a brilliant quote, and I use it in the groups, in the sobriety groups that I lead every Sunday. You know, it's like when you can't say no, the body will for you in some form of illness, or um, whether you're behind, you know, when you're behind the wheel of a car, you know, it'll shut down. Um, so, you know, it's kind of recovery. It's like learning how to say no, which is, you know, turning back on the part of your brain that is the most evolved. <laughs> You know, the prefrontal cortex up here? Yeah. It's called the stop system, which is uh, responsible for rational thinking, judgment, um, saying no, all the right, all the critical um, decision-making stuff is the most evolved part of the brain, and it's the part of the brain that falls asleep when we're drinking or using. Go figure. You know, go figure. <laughs> you know, it's the furthest away where blood's supposed to go. Right. And when it's not activated... You know, you got your fucking, your eight brain still going, eat, fuck, sleep, you know, <laughs> like, pillage, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, 
survival. And, and that's, that, if that's the only part of your brain that's activated, then that's how you're going to learn to be, you know? So, you know, going back to that brain science piece, I mean, that's where it becomes really fascinating and where it all begins to make sense that this person isn't just shitty. They're just becoming a fucking caveman again. <laughs> <laughs> they're regressing. Yeah, regressing. Um, so. Another thing, too, that I've kind of picked up on as you as you've kind of been talking about all this and we can kind of wrap this up if you got to go. Um, sure. You kind of talked about people, um, the whole, like, if you love something, let it go, you know, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. During your recovery, um, how hard was it to kind of re, I don't know if reconnect or reestablish. I mean, they kind of mean the same thing, but um, how hard was it to kind of get your relationships back if that makes sense if that question makes sense i don't know if i'm getting what the answer i'm or the question i'm trying to ask um because i mean like i would imagine i mean you know i've been with my now wife going on a little over six years but i would imagine when you have time with somebody like that that obviously if they're you know able to get through something like that with you um or even long-term friends family whatever um that obviously it'll put a strain on your relationship and we are a small percentage by the way that um, have made it I'm through not saying that yeah i'm not you know doing that to you know say look at me but it's it's remarkable and i'm grateful for my wife to have gone through all of that wreckage well as i say that that's the part that kind of stood out for me was that it's like like you just said it's not common so i as you said that like you weren't married when you were it could have been easier to walk away considering you, there was nothing legally binding you like you weren't married things like yeah. that so at that point it's like that's why i was kind of like wow it is rare like that not only did she you know stay with with you through everything and help you but like i mean you guys are still married or just got married as well um yeah again you're you're, you're basically my life just like a week or a month before me like you got married i think a month before we did yeah yeah that's pretty so happy crazy. one year anniversary to you as well <laughs> yeah. bam congratulations brother um yep. <laughs> we made it we made it <laughs> only however many more left if only people knew because you know at, you know when i say uh you know they see the ring and they're all well, i don't have it on right now oh uh, <laughs> No, well, the work I do, it's kind of like That's I can't true. work there. But um, so, anyways, uh, you know, when they say, oh, "So how long you been married?" I say a year, and they're like, "Oh, geez, well, you made it." You know, the do the shitty typical phrases that they want to do. Little do they know yeah. my back, our backstory. Right. Like we've been together almost nine years. It'll be nine years this February, this Valentine's Day, actually. So and, uh, yeah, Typical. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, you know what I mean. It's, yeah. So we've been through pretty much all of it, and um, you know, but I think the key to it really is, if I had to give any advice, is open, honest communication and consistency, and uh, that's one thing I didn't, I couldn't provide in my active addiction, and it's. You know, it, it it almost it contradicts it. It just is impossible with that because you have a relationship with a thing, 
on right. the side that you're committing all of your time, money, and effort to, you know, and uh, it becomes your priority. And um, grant, so now, you know, my priority is my sobriety, and there's a program that that I um a recovery group that I attend and lead, which is called Secular Organizations for Sobriety, which um, is an alternative to 12-step recovery, which is, you know, the traditional way to get sober. The groups um, are everywhere. But um, those groups left a, a sour taste in my mouth. It just wasn't something that jived with me. Uh, it wasn't my cup of tea, and I, I, don't, I don't naysay the group. I'm very grateful for the people who... Um, you know, offer a group like that for people who are getting sober. But, you know, it's kind of like when you go to, you know, a, a show, you don't just go to see one band. Some people do. Yeah. <laughs> As I say, when but you start playing shows again, I'm sure if when even if it's just Dinosaur Mace or whatever, I'm sure you'll get the, uh, the text messages or Facebook message. Uh, when do you go on? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, or you know, if you go to a restaurant, some some there, that's why there shouldn't there isn't one thing on the menu. You know, so in recovery, there's got to be more options for for recovery groups, and I think that's um, why uh, SOS struck a chord with me. And um, so, you know, that's where I'm at, and I'm, um, you know, I on my path to becoming a KSAC, which is a certified alcohol and substance abuse counselor. Um, I just got to take the state exam, um, get my hours in, and then I'll be ripping and ripping and roaring. Um, there was, what did you ask earlier? There was one thing. Um, I wanted to go back to that piece about the romanticizing. Oh, uh, about how a lot of times when you hear people talk about their when they used to be using whatever it is they kind of romanticize it a little bit as if like yeah i know it was bad however like i said with like dave navarro where he's like i know it's bad and i know if i were to go back it'd probably kill me this time because i just wouldn't stop but he looks back on when he was shooting up and just like god a part of me is just like it would be so great if i could just do that again like just that feeling you get when that high and i'm always shocked that it's like people who have decades of sobriety or whatever like or at least like i said in in these books and maybe that's you know an editor kind of embellishing embellishing um but i'm always just shocked at how people romanticize their addictions sometimes yeah what um but you saying that what brings to mind is uh the great keith richards yeah who in his book uh he said that um it was about the when he speaks about addiction and his drug use. It was about the search for oblivion, um, that compulsive yearning. I don't know if I'm sort of paraphrasing. Um, I'm sure he had someone paraphrase what he said as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, the desperate desperation, or or it was like, uh, oh my god, that compulsive pursuit to not be yourself for a few hours okay you know and that's just like so it, it's crazy but that's what it is it's like you you're either in you're escaping yourself or you're you're like trying to meet a um 
an envisioned embodiment of yourself in a different realm, if that makes sense. No, it does. You know, I think that's where the artistic aspect of it comes, you know, because you see yourself as something else completely, and that's where you go, you know, to create or just be comfort and feel whole. Um, and and that's that's how I felt on Ozfest. <laughs> You know, I mean, let's face it, I I was a 19-year-old kid who was playing, you know, on the same stage as Rob Zombie, John Five, um, Kill Switch, Soil Work, uh, The Haunted. Um, I think Barrier Dead was on that one, too. Yeah, Barrier Dead, great guys. Um, still talk to those guys to this day. Um who the hell else was on there? So you guys did an 04? Wicked Wisdom. Yeah. Wicked Wisdom. Well, no, I was going to say, because there was the band. That was also the year that A Dozen Furies was on it. Yes, the winners of the MTV Rossfest or yeah, whatever yeah. it was called. Yeah. <laughs> Those nice guys as well. That was funny. That was funny. They, they were in this makeshift RV that was just falling apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, while everyone else is on a bus or sharing a bus, we shared a bus with with uh, Black Dahlia Murder. I remember, because uh, Black Dahlia is from here in Michigan, and I remember uh, a friend that I worked with or whatever had friends who knew those dudes, like went to school with them, and we ended up going to a show and hanging out. And I remember before, like when I got introduced through Friends of Friends, they were all playing like... I don't remember if it was, like, Magic or something like that. Like, uh, It could have been Magic. Uh, but I just remember being like, wow. I <laughs> thought you guys were going to be, like, way more, like... I definitely wasn't expecting to come back and have most of you, like, playing, like, Magic and being all nerdy and shit. And then it's like you go on stage sure. and, like, you are the, how you present yourselves, but... I thought you guys were going to have way more depth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, that they don't, but I, I know where you're coming from. It's it's always interesting meeting meeting people. Uh, hey, they say what do they say? Don't meet your heroes or don't meet your idols. Your idols. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that's that's only true in some aspects, you know, because people are people. Like I I didn't expect uh, John Five to be so cool, um, even though our meeting was very brief. But uh, you know. You get people in any business who are genuinely just decent human beings, and then uh, the rest. So it's a good friend of mine, Eric, who helps me lead sobriety groups. He's like, pick the wheat from the chaff. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean because you know they're good musicians doesn't mean they're good people. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. I can only think of one person that I've ever met that it was like obnoxiously douchey. And it was Jared Leto's brother uh, when I saw them open for Cold when they were nobody on that first record. And uh, there were 20 of us, which is uh, the irony of that show, and I brought it up before, I think, is that uh, my wife was there, but we didn't know each other at the time. But she was, like, one of 18 other people and, like, one of the only women at the show. And uh, I remember when 30 Seconds was done, we went over and got, like, our CDs and shit autographed. And then we were like, hey, can we get a photo? And Jared, let, Jared was like, yeah, sure, no, not a problem. And his brother was like, make it quick. And I wanted to be like, who the fuck's beating down your merch like booth right now to like fucking at, like do anything? Like, no one cares. Right. Like, you know, I don't know. 
It uh, it's interesting. I uh, I don't know if you listen to Jamie Josta's podcast. He always talks about like old stories and Punishers, as he calls them. So I've become a lot more aware that I have Punisher Punisher tendencies at times, uh, especially the kind where you're like, no, but like I know things. So like, like these other people are annoying. I'm not. And then it's like as I've gotten older and notice it more now. Like when hanging out with friends when they come through on tour, I'm like. Fuck, that was totally me like ten years ago. Shit. Mm. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. You know, these days I'm thirty two. It's I mean we're not fucking old farts, but I Don't mean feel, we're not far away from it. I actually feel like though. I think I was talking to my dad about this recently about how I, well actually I guess it would be the same for them in the same context. But I was gonna say I feel like the. See, we graduated in 02, so it's been technically full count this year. It's been 15 years since we both graduated high school. I feel like so much more has happened in the last 15, 20 years than has really at any other point with, like, technology and social media and just the way, mm-hmm. like, the world's changed. I feel like so much more has changed in this amount of time. Like, I mean, I made a joke with uh, someone else, uh, Veronica, when I did a podcast with uh, her a couple of weeks ago about how I think you like we are the last group of people who remembers what life was like before the internet. Well, yeah. Like, think about yes, that. Yes, <laughs> literally before the internet. Yeah, like I, um, I remember not having the internet, and then when I got it, it yeah. pretty much sucked and it was slow, and I pretty much only used it to play Max Payne on the computer. <laughs> yeah, it's totally. Like, we are the, gate, we are the gateway to the past yeah. from... <laughs> like you brought you know, up tapes or, and things like that it's like records are coming back tapes are coming back which again i don't understand because at least with vinyl they've redone it so it's heavier it doesn't warp as easily as the old vinyl used to it has better sure. sounding quality but tape like it still gets stretched out like you can't really improve tape so i don't know why it's I a medium that's coming back i i think to be fair that there is a sentimental value there with um a, a quality of sound that is not the best, but something that is familiar, you know, and could bring you back, you know, to a. Uh, let's face it, you know, you're revisiting the past. I suppose. It's, I guess that's a. I, I mean, it's. I'm very I'm being very generous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's kind of like these days. I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody who, you know, if it brings them joy. Um. Well, I think we've kind of covered quite a bit. Unless there's anything else kind of you want to bring up or any socials that you want to plug or... I mean, you already brought up uh, Mateo, if I'm saying that correctly, or Mateo. Oh, um, yes. If you would like to type any of it out, um, his name is Dr. Gabor, G-A-B-O-R, Mate, M-A-T-E, with a uh, one of those apostrophe slashes over the E. Not the umlauts? Um, Yes, and his uh, one of his latest books is called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, uh, Close Encounters with Addiction, with um, which is a great analogy. Uh, he uses a Buddhist analogy about the hungry ghosts, which, is, which are um, um, creatures that, you know, with large bellies and scrawny necks, you know, that keep filling themselves with things from the outside but it doesn't give them any pleasure you know but they have these you know the huge bellies represents meaningless shit that they stuff themselves with but they're still malnourished 
and hollow hollow exactly so i think that um is a really really cool uh spiritual analogy and story and concept um there's also a cool concept uh, it's a greek myth the greek myth of um oh my god what the hell's his name ah. socrates it's not socrates <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's gonna kill me <laughs> socrates <laughs> Wait, we'll just let's the myth of Socrates. <laughs> and then, yeah, I just looked that one up. Uh, it's about a guy who was, he was, um, he betrayed the ancient gods, and his punishment was to roll a, um, a boulder up a mountain every day for the rest of his life, you know, to get the boulder to the top, and then to have it roll down to the bottom of the mountain and begin the same process the next day. And that's essentially what addiction is about. You know, you get to, you know, top of the mountain, and that's your your high, the peak. And then the come down is when you go down that mountain to get the boulder and roll it back up the hill. Uh, <laughs> Sisyphus. 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 Yeah. Yep. That's right. Or Corinth. Uh, Corinth. Um, I don't. That one doesn't sound familiar, but well, according to it, the Wikipedia, which whatever. <laughs> yes, Sisyphus betrayed the ancient gods, and that was his punishment. And it's kind of like, it's exactly what, you know, like the height of active addiction is, you know, where that pursuit of wanting that high, and uh, going back, never to the being bite. able to enjoy it because you have to start from scratch the next day, like. <laughs> It's fucking torture. So, you know, so glad I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> I guess uh, actually one last thing I'll, I'll bring up as a question, and it's more sure, just for uh, my own amusement. How close, do you, how close were you or how close do you think you were uh, of joining Paramore? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um, I still have the screenshot of uh, the Wikipedia page when I was their drummer. Was that you that put my name up there? Uh, on the Wikipedia page? Yes. Yeah, no, I don't think I've ever added anything to Wikipedia. I might have tagged you or shared your video on their thing. Okay, because when I posted it on the face the IDT Facebook page, somebody must have like gone to Wikipedia, <laughs> Paramore's Wikipedia, and, and put me on there as their drummer. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I remember it, as odd as this is to remember, I think right around then too, uh, Rat Boy was out of uh, every it eated, uh, yeah. and I think I had made a joke. I was like, "Well, if Paramore doesn't want you, at least you could probably join Eated since you both live in Buffalo." Yep, yep. I um, Rat Boy and I are um, uh, Mike Novak. Yeah. Uh, well, I saw he just played with them a couple of weeks ago. What's that? I said I saw he just played with them a couple of weeks ago at the Christmas yeah, shows. Yeah, played with them. They reunited for, um, you know, the the Christmas set or the, the end of the Christmas set. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're good friends to this day. And I was pissed he didn't tell me about it. And I was like, are you kidding me? What the fuck? If you would have told me, I, I definitely would have been there. 
you know, I would have made a rank <laughs> for a babysitter. And he's like, dude, I didn't even know about it. <laughs> they, they texted him like two days before and said, hey, learn these songs. <laughs> and come play. You know, it's pretty, pretty cool. I still always thought, uh, I still don't know how the hell you got, how you play some of the shit you've played. I just, I was looking at, a, I always remember the video of Sentiments of You toward the, at, uh, Hellfest from like, oh, three or oh four. Oh my God. Yeah. That was when we were and just, you, um, I always thought you just look like, an, you look like you just wanted to kill everybody. You always look so <laughs> mean and angry when you play. Yeah, I, I was. <laughs> yeah. I was. That was one thing people always told me that. Um, I. I mean, I guess. I guess I do. Is that you know, they don't know how I hit so hard. It's like I don't know either. Well, no, I know. How, I know how people hit hard, and but yeah. I mean that's the thing is like typically you don't see a lot of drummers like look like mean when they're playing <laughs> like i don't know how else to, like i mean like i'm thinking of uh like michael from uh 68 like when he plays it looks like fun and it's like they have a sure. good time doing it or like any like i can think it like i mean shit even lars who plays like you know some old metallica songs that are kind of aggressive or whatever but he's like making o faces and like it looks like he's having fun like like i said like i don't know if it was just I mean, even thinking of, like, Justin Foley or whatever from, like, Blood Has Been Shed or, I guess, now Killswitch or whatever, it's like, I can think of all these people, and sometimes they just look like like they're balancing their checkbook in their mind, like, when they're playing, and it's like, there's you, and you're just, like, literally beating the shit out of everything, and then, like, having the most pissed off look, like, say something, motherfucker. (laughs) It's like, Your move, asshole. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just like, how do you, a, know, how do your legs and shit move that fast that you have time to even like have an angry look on you? Are you just mad at yourself for like writing these parts? <laughs> um, it has something. It has a lot to do with both time travel and <laughs> anger management. Um, I feel like I'm listening to Dave Attell talk right now. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I could explain what's happening up there, but really, it's. Um, it comes back to, you know, the reason I started to begin with is to feel connected. And then when I'm, you know, so when I was up there, that's just like, that's where I belonged. That's where I felt comfortable. And that's like where everything was, I I was able to just let loose everything that was inside. And, um, maybe maybe I really was angry when you think about it. Yeah, I guess guess that's what that was all about. It's like beating the shit out of my dad. <laughs> Have you ever? I mean, actually, this is something else I wanted to ask, and I guess we'll close on this, or maybe find something else a little more positive to end on. Oh, that's um, cool. What? What was it like? I mean, because you you talked earlier about how you had to come to the realization of what it is either that you're you're not facing or you're running away from or whatever. Was it was it an easy conclusion to kind of realize that it kind of stemmed from the issues like with your with an absentee dad, or was it something that took a lot more soul searching? I guess, for lack of a, a better phrase. Well, when you, um, I'll say this: it takes a lot of courage to a admit that you have a problem that needs fixing, and b the courage to take the necessary steps to fix it and for me i mean it's maybe not necessarily 
like something that needs to happen because you have to meet people where they are. You know, you can't just force somebody to, you know, do meet something they're uncomfortable, they're uncomfortable with. But at the same token, it may be necessary because um, you have to go to a place where you're very vulnerable, which, you know, this society says, well, you know, if you're vulnerable, then you're a fucking snowflake, you know. Time off for just a second. Is that a new phrase that people are latching onto? I've seen it everywhere the last like two weeks, and I've never seen it before. I don't want to go too far into it, but I will say this: that it it comes from a place of well, I hate myself, so I'm gonna make other people feel the same way, or try to. Ah. You know, that's all that stems from. You know, like you're calling people a fucking snowflake, not realizing that it turns into H2O, which is the essence of life. I <laughs> mean. I just, just didn't know if it was, like, at first I thought it was, like, oh, aren't you a pretty little snowflake, as in, like, being, like, you're unique, you're... Like, you're a pussy. Yeah. Well, th- well, then there's that, too. Like, I mean, I've taken it a couple of different ways based on how I've seen it used in the last couple of weeks, but it's, like, I wasn't sure. It's, like, oh, you're a snow... Like, oh, I'm a, I'm a white little snowflake or whatever, and it's, like, okay, so, like, you're one and, like, you are unique unto yourself or that you are gonna, like, be here temporarily and then melt away or, like, you just said, right. like, oh, like, you're a pussy, so it's, like... The- yeah, so like I'm trying to figure out like they're trying to insult you. Yeah, but it's it's really you know, but we don't have to go any further into <laughs> no, it. No, that's they're fine. I just I had to, never tried guess... to belittle somebody. Okay, and make them you know seem you know uh, like that caring is a bad thing. Okay, you know, like being vulnerable is so. Going back to what I was saying about society and you know you know just competition and. There's, you know, violence is like, I mean, the UFC is out of control. I mean, am I the only one that thinks this? I don't watch you know, it. Like, I, I play the video uh, game, but that's just yeah. to get aggression out when, so I don't, I guess, act on it eventually. But, you know, with Ronda Rousey, you know, this this poor girl who, you know, is just, I, I don't know if she's a shitty person and she deserves, <laughs> nobody's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like why am i even saying that you know nobody deserves to get beat the shit out you know the shit beat out of them and shamed you know unless you're a nazi of course but i don't know i uh, i guess i guess we can and this is i guess as good of a way to wrap up anything as there can be at this point um <laughs> i was going to say like i was uh at this band over uh, the dudes in crowbot and uh one of the the guitar player was tattooing my wife and i and uh while I couldn't watch the movie while I was getting my neck tattooed, we were watching this movie called Blood Blood Sand. Uh, it was on like some like Cinemax or something like at like nine thirty in the morning, uh, and so we watched it start to finish. All the while, while basically shitting on it, how terrible it is, and it's basically like a B horror movie. Although I would say more like a D horror movie. Blood and then, Sand. Blood Sand. It's. I guess if you like shitty horror movies check it out sure. um okay but when we were all done everyone was like oh that was the worst fucking piece of shit i've ever watched oh my god i can't believe i wasted an hour and a half of my time blah 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 and i go you know i'm trying to look at things from this perspective and i was like look at it like this somebody took the time to write it they came up with this concept that was original or whatever to them they wrote uh-huh. it they got funding to make it a movie like some people thought it was good enough to invest in then uh-huh. they employed a, like a crew, a cast and a crew. They made the movie. They got distribution to release it. 
Then someone else picked it up to put it on Showtime. And mm-hmm. I go, so at the end of the day, a simple thought that someone goes, you know what? I'm going to fucking make a movie called Blood Sand, and it's going to be about this. And they saw it through from start to finish. Now, is it going to change the world? Is it going to win any awards for anything? No. And is are the majority of people ever going to know it's exi- it exists? Probably not. But the uh-huh. fact that someone did something from start to finish... And we all sat around and watched it. That's more than any of us have done in that in that realm. So at that exactly. point, it's like, why why shit on someone for doing something when we haven't done it ourselves? It's easy to naysay when it's a lot harder to actually, you know, fucking put in the work and do something and, and create. And because that's kind of the like, mindset I've tried to have a lot more lately, as opposed to being like, well, that thing sucks or it's they're shitty or they whatever. Like it's like, all right, well, they're doing something. We've all had that feeling of being left out or um you know some ounce of jealousy for some people's accomplishment let's just face it and that all stems from the ego which is you know i didn't get what i needed to feel secure and now i have to bring other people down to my level you know and it's sort of um it's a hard process to overcome but when you realize that well um, you're just a fucking bag of water on a rock floating in outer space. I think problems become really trivial, like, you know, mundane bullshit, like somebody making a shitty horror film, like, hey, if it makes them happy, good for them. Yeah. You know, and when you're talking about blood sand, it reminds, describing the whole process, it reminds me of that Pat Oswald sketch where he's talking about deathbed, the bed that eats people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like somebody thought up that, you know, and they had to get a crew and a carpenter to make the headboard for a deathbed. <laughs> you know, they had to make several beds. They had to have a hero bed yeah. and then a bed that was used for. <laughs> it's really absurd when you think about it. But I mean, like I said, at the end of the day, when you really boil it down from like start to, to, to beginning of something to the end like that, it's like. How can you shit on it? Like, it exists, and it didn't before this person took the time or the effort to make it happen. So, and like I said, I think you can apply that to, with that mindset, you can apply that to anything. It's like, yeah, totally. Like, why? It's, it's, it's so much easier, like, and you know, this sounds very, you know, preachy, whatever. It's so much easier to be negative than it is to be positive. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, simply put, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's just so true, and, and the truth hurts the most. <laughs> You know, so it's, I mean, that's why people get defensive and say, yeah, whatever. And, uh, you know, fuck you, Snowflake. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, so I think uh, it's really hard to, you you have to be, even with people like that, you have to kill them with kindness kindness or turn the other cheek, I guess. You know, it's it's really difficult to do. And I'm I'm probably going to get some flack from it, you know, like... Yeah, even with that Nazi guy who got punched, sucker punched, <laughs> like I feel bad for him because that is a kid who didn't get what he needed growing up. When you really boil it down, it's like what brings a person to that level? Exactly what I just said. You know, someone's feeling so incomplete with themselves that they have to feel, you know, get people to follow them, uh, you know, this hateful rhetoric because they're so angry 
you know, like, it's it's sad. So, you know, but it was still cool to see him get punched. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like, you know, your bottom. You know, it should be that message. Like, you get back what you put into the world, you know, or into the universe, so to speak. And it's so true, man. Like, um, oh, going back to what you were saying about... Uh, um, getting people back into your life, it's, it doesn't, I mean, with, so for me, it was without trying. It just is something happen. It was a byproduct of me doing the right, what I was supposed to be doing. Me putting positive energy into the world and people seeing it and being attracted to it. You know, like this guy looks like he's healthy and he, he looks happy, you know, so let's be near him. You know, so I think from that aspect, when you start to get the most out of life and see that and people see that you're enjoying life, they become attracted to it or they'll put it down because they're not getting what they want, what you're getting. Yeah. The have and the have nots. That's right. You know, so and back in the day, like, I mean, that was me. You know, I, I see the old me in a lot of people, and um, and I get it. So my role today is giving back to help people figure out how to not be that, you know, and show them that this is what can be. It's <laughs> not <You know, laughs> sounding too, like, uh, Morgan Freeman-ish. Uh, hey, everyone likes that voice, so... Yeah, right. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I uh I think that's a good place to stop. I uh sure. appreciate your time and thank you for uh being honest about everything. I know uh may not be the easiest with someone you don't really know. So Hey, whatever, dude. I mean, I sit in a I sit in a room with a bunch of strangers every Sunday and talk about my story, so you sure. know, if I reach a few more people, then all the better. Because life's too short, and uh, occasionally I do get the one person who says, "Were you in a band?" But <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, "Well, yeah." Is it? Do I wear it on my sleeve? <laughs> well, you are wearing an Adidas Today hoodie, so I mean, yeah. Yeah, I am wearing it. Uh, I, <laughs> You're like, "Well, I paid for this shit, so I'm gonna yeah, wear well, it." I paid for the shit. Somebody's got to wear it. Yeah, People right. didn't buy it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm gonna. I'm going to go ahead and let you get back to your, your wife and your kids and talk to you soon. Thanks, dude. So that was the episode I did with uh, Nick. Uh, I know it was a bit lengthy, but I think there's a lot of good information uh, and stories to be told um, about his life uh, dealing with addictions and becoming sober. And um, really want to thank him for being uh, really honest and sincere on the podcast. Um, he didn't have to be, but um, I think it's what... Uh, makes you know podcasts really interesting is when people that you know reveal stories of theirs and um that you may not know and are very honest and upfront about things uh makes you know some of the problems and issues that we all go through a lot more relatable and like you know we're not alone and i think that's a uh very commendable thing uh that nick did for me and for any of those who may listen to this episode um on a different note like I do with anybody who is, you know, in a, from a musical project or in a band or whatever, like to showcase a uh, song. 
that they would like featured at the end. Um, and with this one, I did a dinosaur mace one on the mini episode of Nick's. Uh, and this one, we're going to go with, and it dies today song. Um, we're going to go with their most recent release, uh, son of Dawn, brilliant star. Uh, they released it back in 2014. Um, kind of out of the blue, uh, with original singer, Nick Brooks. Um, I think it's a, a fucking ripping jam and I think it deserves to be played very loudly. Um, so this week's uh, episode is going to end with that. Hope you enjoy it. And if you do, go back to the back catalog of It Dies Today. It's all available on iTunes, Spotify, wherever. Uh, and go give the band's socials uh, a like. So here it is. Uh, Son of Dawn, Brilliant Star. Crank it.